As we closed last week, darkness had fallen on the land during Jesus' last three hours of suffering. At his death, there was an earthquake, tombs were broken open, people were resurrected, and the curtain to the Holy of Holies was torn in half. The centurion and the soldiers guarding Jesus exclaim, this man was the son of God. Several women, mostly relatives, disciples, and friends, plus at least John, stand and watch from a distance as the disappointed crowd drifts mournfully away. It's pretty obvious to the crowd that this man could not have been the Messiah. Elijah had not come to rescue him, and he had not even saved his, himself. And if the crowd is disappointed, Jesus' followers are devastated. Jesus had cried, it is finished. And now it truly is. All four Gospels specifically record that the crucifixion happens on the Friday of Passover week. It's a day of preparation. That's It's called that. It's a day of preparation for the Sabbath. And this is a high Sabbath, a particularly important one, since it falls during Passover week. So it's now late on Friday afternoon, nearly time for the Sabbath to begin. It's important to the Jewish community that their dead not be left exposed over this Sabbath. And unfortunately, the three crucified men are taking too long to die. Sundown is coming. So the religious leaders go to Pilate and ask him to order his soldiers to break the legs of the crucified men so they will asphyxiate more quickly leaving enough time for their families to get the bodies off of the crosses before sundown. Pilate orders it done, but when the soldier gets to Jesus, he discovers there is no need to break his legs, for he is already dead. John, who is the only one who records this part of the story, says that this is in fulfillment of Hebrew scripture. And although John doesn't say this, I think it's at this precise moment that John makes the mental connection between Jesus and the Passover lamb. Both Exodus and Numbers specify that none of the bones of the Passover lamb are to be broken. And John is the one who coined the phrase lamb of God. And I think it's this very moment that it pops into his head, although he doesn't actually write it into his gospel until 60 years later when he writes this gospel down. And I think this is the moment that he begins to call Jesus lamb of God. Also notice that John, like Jesus and Matthew and the other gospel writers, believes the entire Hebrew Bible to be prophecy that can still be fulfilled. If you look at this reference, this reference is not from one of the prophets. And yet John says this, this not breaking his legs fulfills prophecy. It doesn't mean that the historical events in the Hebrew Bible um, never happened and the prophecies to the people about the diaspora and going into slavery and all those things didn't happen. It's more a reflection of the Hebrew notion of what we call pretzel time, where the past, present, and future all exist together. John is also probably thinking of Psalm 34, which is a Psalm of David. In it, David says, I sought Yahweh and he heard me. I'm kind of skipping around in the psalm here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The just cry out, and Yahweh hears them and delivers them from their troubles. Yahweh is close to the brokenhearted. The Lord hears the cries of the afflicted and delivers them. Not one of their bones will be broken. No one who trusts Yahweh will be condemned. This is so poignant in this moment where Jesus has been utterly condemned by the world. One of the soldiers pierces Jesus' side with the tip of his spear just to make sure he's dead. 
And according to the soldier's own telling of the story later, both blood and water gush forth from Jesus' side. John, hearing the story, remembers the prophecy of Zechariah 12.10. It's one of the great end-time prophecies where the Lord says, I will pour a spirit of grace, that word can also mean favor, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they pierced, and they will weep and grieve as over an only son, a firstborn child. Now, there's not much worse grieving than what is felt over the loss of a firstborn child. This grief will be intense. And I want to stop here for a second and point out that this exact verse is used frequently by Christians as a proof text of how angry the Lord is at the Jews for killing Jesus and how sorry they'll be for what they did. What arrogance on our part? What hubris to dare to twist God's own words against God's own people. Shame on us. We completely ignore the whole first half of that verse, where the context is the Lord tenderly ministering to the Jews specifically, pouring over them the sure knowledge of his grace and favor towards them. This verse is not a pejorative against the Jews. It is a verse of the tenderest love and compassion from God, which is reciprocated with equal intensity by the Jews. While all this is happening, Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate. Now, Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin, the high council of the Jews, which had worked so hard to get Jesus crucified. All four Gospels agree that Joseph is a secret disciple of Jesus. Luke says Joseph had not agreed with the Sanhedrin's verdict or actions. So Joseph courageously goes before Pilate and asks that he be allowed to take Jesus' body from the cross. Pilate asks the soldiers if Jesus has died. And when this is confirmed, Pilate consents. Time is short. There are only a few minutes of daylight left. Joseph takes Nicodemus with him. Remember Nicodemus, the member of the Sanhedrin who had come to Jesus secretly at night with his questions? That Nicodemus. Nicodemus and Joseph hurry to the cross and take Jesus' lacerated body down. Nicodemus has brought large jars of myrrh to anoint the body, but there isn't time to do it right. They do the best they can quickly and wrap the body in strips of clean white linen. Joseph's own family tomb is very nearby, and it's so new that no one has been laid in it yet. Quickly, they carry Jesus' body to the tomb and place it inside. Then, as Jesus' mother Mary and the disciple Mary Magdalene watch, the men roll the heavy stone across the mouth of the tomb. And then everyone goes home. The women hurry to prepare spices so they can come back and clean and dress Jesus' body properly early on Sunday morning. But they, then they rest in observance of the Sabbath. Not everyone is resting, though. Overnight, the religious leaders have thought of something else that might go wrong. And it's important enough that they go back to Pilate on the Sabbath day itself, they say, we have remembered how that imposter told people, I will arise after three days. Please order guards for the tomb until the third day, or else his disciples might steal his body and tell the people he rose from the dead. And that would cause even more problems than when he was alive. Pilate can see their point and says, do it. Take a guard. Make the tomb as secure as you can. So the religious leaders post guards at the entrance of the tomb. 
We know that Jesus will be resurrected in the wee hours of Sunday morning, sometimes shortly before sunrise. But with one small exception, which is in Matthew, the Gospels are silent about what happens to Jesus in those intervening hours between sundown on Friday night and sunrise on Sunday morning. So what did happen to Jesus during the hours between his burial and resurrection? There's a ton of speculation, but not much else. Let's look at what we know and what we don't know. Matthew records that at his crucifixion, Jesus cries out in a loud voice and releases his spirit. This may just be a cultural euphemism for death, but I think those who have sat by a deathbed know how visceral this release can be and how gone the spirit is from the body after death. There's absolutely no denying that the spirit goes elsewhere, for it is no longer in that body. Then, according to John, after his resurrection, when Jesus sees Mary Magdalene and she goes to hug him, he tells her, do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I am ascending to my Father and yours, to my God and yours. Now, that's a very interesting statement. At this point in his resurrection, Jesus has not yet been to the Father, and it's Sunday already. Jesus had told the thief who was crucified with him on Friday that he'd be with with him in paradise that very day. We know that the idea of paradise is a relatively recent cultural one, as is the idea of the soul being present with God immediately upon death. So all of this may be speculation anyway, but let's keep pursuing what little we've got to go on. If Jesus was not in paradise, like he said he'd be, then where was he? Jesus did give a little hint about this time gap back in Matthew 12, when the scribes and Pharisees were pestering him to come up with a miracle. Jesus said, the only miracle you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so too the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. That word earth is the literal land. That's not the word for cosmos or the word for the nations. It's the word for the actual land itself. So Jesus was telling them he'd be in the heart of the earth during this period and that this would be a sign like the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish. But wait a minute. Jesus wasn't in the earth for three days and three nights, was he? He was entombed at sundown on Friday night, and he arose in the pre-dawn hours on Sunday. Since Hebrew time spans are counted inclusively, you could say he was in the tomb at least a tiny part of three days from a few moments before sundown Friday through all of Saturday and a few hours on Sunday morning. So the three days part works, but he was definitely not in that tomb for three nights. He was only in the tomb Friday night and Saturday night, two nights. So what do we do with Jesus' statement about being in there three nights? Well, one likely possibility is that Jesus has been misquoted. Let's think about Jonah in the belly of that whale. Jonah had been running from God's call, but when he saw the consequences to the sailors, he offered to be thrown overboard to save their lives. And when they did throw him overboard, God not only saved the sailors, but he provided a safe haven for Jonah. And when the fish deposited him on land, Jonah went immediately to Nineveh and preached. And a miracle happened. The people of Nineveh repented. But Jesus has not been running away from God. He does not need to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth so he will repent and do what God has sent him to do. This explanation is not satisfactory at all. Fortunately, We have our backpack tools at hand. 
let's compare Matthew and Luke's versions of this dialogue. In Luke's version of Jesus' discussion with the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus doesn't mention three days and he three nights. He only says they won't get any miracle except the sign of Jonah. He says the the Ninevites that Jonah preached to repented, and the scribes and Pharisees have something greater than Jonah with them. So it may be that Matthew filled in the three days and three nights bit because he didn't get the point, and that that's not actually what Jesus said at all. The miracle was not that Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, but that Jonah's preaching And the Ninevite repentance was a real miracle. And that makes a lot more sense. Another place Jesus talks about these three days is when he talks about the temple being destroyed. In John's gospel, uh, this conversation happens when the religious leaders get mad at Jesus for upending the tables of the money changers and the vendors in the temple. The religious leaders challenge his authority and Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And the religious leaders are like, what the heck are you talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple. But after Jesus is crucified and resurrected, John says the disciples remember this incident and realize Jesus was talking about his own body. And notice he didn't say anything about nights, just three days. Jesus has been predicting his death and resurrection pretty specifically for a while now. Back in Matthew 16, 21, he told his disciples he would have to go to Jerusalem where he would suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, be put to death, and be raised on the third day. He said the same thing again in Matthew 17, 23. And Mark tells us that after the transfiguration, which happened in the middle of Jesus' ministry, Jesus told the disciples not to tell anyone they'd seen him talking to Moses and Elijah until after he'd been raised from the dead. Then a little later, as Jesus and the disciples walked to Jerusalem, Jesus told them he was about to be handed over to the religious leaders. He told them he'd be condemned to death and handed over to the Gentiles who would mock him, whip him, and kill him. Then, three days later, he would rise again. Take a moment and look at all these references to three days. No mention of nights. I'm pretty sure from all of this that Jesus never said he would be in the earth three nights. It looks to me like Jesus consistently said he would rise on the third day, which is exactly what he did. So what was Jesus doing during the three days and two nights he was in the tomb? If he was dead, what happened to his spirit? Where did it go? Jesus doesn't say Even the prophecies in the Hebrew Bible are not specific about the three days. And that makes sense. The Israelites who wrote the Hebrew Bible believed that after death, people can expect to go to Sheol, a word that simply means the grave. Psalm 89 is a great place to see this. Jesus would have studied this same psalm and others like it. It says, who can live and not see death? Who can deliver his life from Sheol, the grave? This quote about Sheol comes at the end of the psalm. The psalm starts out by reminding the Lord that he said, I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your lineage and your throne forever. The psalmist reminds the Lord of this three times over the course of the psalm. He says, remember how you said his line will extend forever and his throne will endure like the sun and be established like the moon. So we can see that to the Hebrews, 
What was important after death was that your descendants would live on forever. That was the greatest promise and the greatest hope a man could have in their culture. For them, it wasn't about heaven at all. That seems like such a foreign concept to us, but we have to lay down our Western preconceptions so we can understand the scripture properly. So now that we've got that as an anchor, let's see the progression over the ensuing centuries. The Hebrews who wrote these words were eventually conquered by the Greeks, and the Greeks did not believe that dead is dead. They believed in an underworld where souls went after death, and the name of this shadowy underworld for them was Hades. So when the Greeks translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, they used the word Hades instead of Sheol, even though the Greek concept of Hades is very different than the Hebrew concept of Sheol. It is this Greek version of scripture that the New Testament writers used. It's this Greek version that Jesus had. Then, when this was all eventually translated into English for us, Hades became the word hell, which, as you know, has vastly different connotations than a neutral grave like Sheol or even a shadowy underworld like Hades. The idea of a fiery hell was introduced to Palestine even before the Greeks, but it became very popular in the Hebrew culture, just only just a few hundred years before Christ. We see it enter into their writings in a big way during the intertestamental period, the, the period in between when the Hebrew Bible ends and the New Testament begins. You can see examples in the Apocrypha, as well as in a story or two that make their way into the New Testament. The idea of a fiery hell, of course, has to be accompanied by a corresponding idea of a paradise. And that means there had to be a judgment for the purpose of sorting souls. Rather than everyone going to one place, like Sheol or Hades, and having better or worse positions within that place, (laughs) um, like the Hades idea of things, people would go to either a fiery punishment or to eternal bliss. See the progression and how it was influenced by both language and culture? This was the religious context Jesus was born into. These are the terms the people of his day used. So when he talked to the people, these were the concepts and the words he used to communicate with them. But throughout all of this, God did not change. God's love did not change. Whatever happens after death did not change. It is our theological and cultural language that has changed. I think we need to take a deep breath here and remember a couple of baseline things. First, whatever we think is probably wrong. Who knows whether Sheol or Hades or a fiery hell in paradise, those are equally suspect (laughs) because they're equally cultural. Um, The Sadducees, for example, during Jesus' time were sure there was no such thing as a bodily resurrection. But when they asked Jesus about it, Jesus' answer was that we aren't dead when our bodies die. He reminded them that God consistently calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Even though they were all long dead by that time. Jesus reminded them that God is the God of life, of the living. Therefore, if God is their God, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive, even though their bodies are dead. We know we are present with the Lord now in our physical lives, and we'll still be present with the Lord when we die. So what changes? 
The Apostle Paul explains it this way. We haven't got to him, so I'm cheating. I'm skipping ahead, but this, this is relevant. Now we see as if looking through a dim glass, but then, meaning after death, we will see face to face. There is something about our new way of, quote, being with the Lord that is clearer after death. Personally, I don't think our present dimness was a problem for Jesus. I think Jesus always saw God clearly and that he tried to show us how to see God that clearly as well. I think our dim glass can become clearer and clearer even this side of death. Anything Jesus did in his earthly body is for us. That's the point of him having an earthly body. I don't think there was any dim glass for Jesus, even during his physical life. So I don't really think that that's what changed for Jesus when he died. So I think Jesus was exactly where he said he'd be, in the heart of the earth, literally in his tomb. Perhaps it is akin to how we feel when we are sleeping. We're not present mentally in our bodies, but we're certainly not in heaven. I think this is also consistent with his statement to Mary on that Resurrection Sunday, that he'd not yet ascended to the Father. Perhaps it is no accident that the euphemism for death that Jesus consistently used in his lifetime was to say someone had fallen asleep. We simply don't know the details, folks. They must not be important to how we live our daily lives or Jesus would have told us. And above all, we need to remember that whatever we might imagine is likely to be wrong. Speculation is pointless. It is speculation. But we have a little more speculation to take a look at. What about the popular teaching that Jesus spent this gap period preaching in hell? This is usually called the harrowing of Hades. Well, this entire teaching hangs on passage in 1 Peter 3 that says, Jesus, having been put to death in the flesh, was made alive in the spirit in which he preached to the imprisoned spirits who had disobeyed during the time of Noah. That's it. And it's in a book of the Bible that scholars highly doubt was even written by Peter in the first place. It is definitely not something to hang an elaborate theology on. Nevertheless, it is commonly taught that this means that Jesus went to hell to preach salvation to all the Old Testament souls who died before Jesus came to save us. It is used as a proof text that the Old Testament folks were all lost sinners and could not have been saved unless Jesus went to get them from hell. That is absolutely ridiculous. I've got a big problem thinking that all the people in the Old Testament went straight to hell when they died. (laughs) That is in no way consistent with the witness of the whole of Scripture. And besides that, look at this passage. Even in the passage itself, it says he only preached to the people of Noah's time, way, way, way before Abraham, Moses, David, or any of the other folks in the Old Testament were ever even born. Even if we believe this passage means Jesus preached in hell, it still means Abraham, Isaac, Moses, David, almost all the folks in the Old Testament were not given this second chance by Jesus. And that makes no sense at all. God calls himself by the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom Jesus has insisted are living. Why would God call himself by the names of men consigned to hell? He wouldn't do it, would he? (laughs) I think it makes much more sense to remember that the writer of 1 Peter, whoever it was, 
is a Greek. We can tell that from the language he's using. And he believes what the Greeks of his culture and time believe. And this is his explanation of where Jesus went. We simply cannot allow ourselves to hang a huge chunk of theology on this teaching of his. That said, I think it makes all the sense in the world that Jesus would continue to do what he's always done. If we are making ourselves miserable with our love of darkness, if we are pushing joy away with both hands, if we are eating pig slops while our heavenly father stands ready to shower us with every possible blessing, then Jesus will be at our side every single day asking us if we're ready to change our minds. I just don't think there's a lot of rational support, much less scriptural support, for thinking that the harrowing of hell was how Jesus spent those two nights in the tomb. All we really know about that time gap is what Jesus told us, or has been quoted as telling us, and that is that he'd be in the heart of the earth, period. I think he was simply saying he'd be dead. But then on that glorious Sunday morning, in the dark of the early morning hours, Jesus rises from the dead. The first to arrive is Mary Magdalene. And when she sees the empty tomb, she dissolves into tears. But Jesus himself speaks to her and asks her why she's crying. And Mary does not recognize him. He, she thinks he's the gardener and begs him to tell her where Jesus' body has been taken. And then Jesus speaks her name, Mary. And she recognizes him. But when she goes to hug him, he says, don't, don't touch me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. I am ascending to my Father and yours, to my God and yours. And he sends her away to tell the other disciples I am reminded of a friend whose mother died recently. My friend spent every minute with her in those last days, sleeping in her bed, holding her hand. It was a beautiful and peaceful death. And through it all, her mother talked with beloved family members who had already died. She spoke with loved ones more and more urgently as she neared death, saying, open the door wider, open it wider. I think this is what Jesus is talking about. I think that in this moment on Sunday morning, Jesus is being beckoned as we all are beckoned, and he feels the sense of urgency that so many dying people feel when they glimpse their loved ones pulling them, beckoning them. I don't think Jesus is being rude to Mary. I think Jesus has been resurrected into his new <laughs> resurrected body, and he's being beckoned by the Father, and he desperately desires to go. That, at least, is my take on this. I think um, we try to fit all the explanations into a linear concept, and we're in pretzel time here. Don't forget that. Remember that the past, the present, and the future are all together in the death and resurrection of Christ. So don't get hung up on trying to force what the Spirit is doing into a particular linear explanation. You'll miss the entire point. Next week, we'll talk more about various versions of the resurrection story and, you know, what happens afterwards. Um, and next week will be our last class in this series. But for now, let's go back and give some thought to John's idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God um, we need to think about what that might mean because that, that has had a big um, impact on Christian thought about Jesus. And we're going to see, we're going to see it uh, crop up a lot in the way Paul talks about Jesus. So when you um, go to your uh, breakout groups, skip straight to the table where there are three passages to consider. Um, one passage is about 
um, sacrificing of lambs that is done daily. Another passage is about sacrifices that happen on the day of atonement, which we often as Christians often associate with Jesus. And um, the third passage is uh, about the the lamb that's sacrificed on Passover. So um, you can skip all the stuff ahead of that and just go straight to the table, read the passages and talk about um, the, the similarities and differences and what they might tell you about Jesus, particularly Jesus as the lamb of God. All right. Everybody's just starting to pop back on. Oh gosh, that was such a good discussion. Talk to I, me about it. Tell me about it. I think where I'm getting mixed up, Woody, is I'm seeing the set free, and I'm thinking set free as in also the dying, you know, set free. And I'm getting myself twisted up in that. She's confusing the Passover lamb and the scapegoat. Ah, okay. That's why I wanted to put both of these passages down for you because Christians conflate those <laughs> um, mm-hmm. largely because of Paul's writings later, which we're going to get to Paul. All right. So I want us to know, but I want us to have a chance to think about it ourselves. So, so talk to me a little more, Julia, about what's confusing here. Well, we had a great discussion in our past uh, breakout group. And we were talking about the last comments about the first Passover. Mm -hmm. And then we were talking about the second goat in the Yom Kippur annual day of atonement sacrifice. And we were talking about the second goat that's prayed over and all the sins of the community are confessed, laid on the goat's head. And it is spared or set free, sent into the wilderness as the people watch their sins dwindle to a dot in the distance, no lambs involved. But I was saying when someone passes, we say they're set free. They're no longer in pain. They're no longer suffering. They're set free. And so for me, it makes me think, could this not have also been a reference to Christ you know it is spared and set free sent to the wilderness to where did he go as the people watched their sins dwindle to a dot in the distance you know what I was saying Julia was that you know some conservative Christians talk about how uh, Jesus died for our sins. Our sins were laid on him and, and he had to die to take away those sins. Mm-hmm. And and what I was saying was that this the second goat, the one on whom the people's sins were laid, did not die. And so that it makes it a little inconsistent to say that Jesus died for our sins. But I can see how it can be twisted. Mm-hmm. Well, we yeah. talked about the two things that were brought up that made the most impression in our group is that um, we talked about blood and bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we also talked about how lambs are innocent and you never hear of anyone getting killed by one. I mean, <laughs> they're, they're not, they're not violent or, or, you know, and so it's the Passover allowed the people had the lamb and an innocent died and it passed over but it still doesn't make 100% sense that that was something God I mean I'm still looking at it with Jesus being the blood that washed you away your sins and and right that I think that's where it comes from but that's really confusing yeah. Well, here was the revelation. Like Here's the revelation I had, and this may not be on point, but all of a sudden my brain just exploded. So Jesus was called the Lamb of God, and Gail asked, what does that mean? And here's what I thought. 
the Passover lamb on that um, first Passover as a reminder of what had happened before. It was killed. Um, where was I going with this? Shoot. Anyway, the Passover lamb didn't have its legs broken, and it was a reminder, and it was sacrificed. There was blood. When Jesus is called the Lamb of God, in my mind, what I think is that he was the final Passover lamb. He died. Wow. His legs were not broken. Blood was spilled. And it was a reminder of how good God is, of God's goodness to us. And after, I'm sorry, I'm having emotional relation with this because my whole um, background of teaching was wrong. That Jesus was the Passover lamb. And after he died, the reminder was changed as he ordained it in the um, what's up? The bread and the wine. And up until Jesus' death, we were reminded of God's goodness by the Passover lamb. They never again sacrificed a Passover. It was done once at the very first Passover. No, no, no. They sacrificed every time. Every Passover had well, a sacrifice. I, I I said that wrong because they do have a lamb that they ate. Right. But um, they didn't call it. Maybe they did call it the Passover lamb. Yeah, it's know, a Passover lamb. Mind. But the but the the first one. The, let me clarify a couple of things because I expected you all to get all balled up in this because this <laughs> has a lot of baggage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you get it. <laughs> Good. The first Passover, all that was needed was a mark on the door. Okay. Right. For death, the angel of death to pass over this house and, and to keep that house safe. It was a an object lesson. God knew where the Israelites were. God knew. God did not need the blood on the door, folks. Get that straight in your head. This was for the Hebrews who were slaves, who worshiped idols, to have a visual they would never forget about how God spared them. And the vision and what God set up was said, all right, I want you to pick a lamb that's absolutely perfect, absolutely innocent. I want you to name it. I want you to have it for three days. I don't remember the naming part. That may, may or may not be true. But, but um, basically, I want you to care for it tenderly for three days and then kill it and put the blood on the doorpost and, and death will pass over you. It was an object lesson for them. God did not need that. Okay. Fast forward, they're wandering around in the desert. Okay. Lots of object lessons because they keep wanting to go back to Egypt. Okay. Lots of visuals. Think junior high here. Okay. You're doing lots of visuals. So they remember. So God forgives them for their sins. Always. God always forgives us. We draw near to God. God draws near to us. That was not different for them, but they didn't understand that. They were used to sacrificing. That's what you did to appease the gods. That's what their culture did, to appease the gods. So God said, okay, I can work with that. All right. I tell you what, one time a year, make sacrifice the biggest, most expensive thing you've got. That was a bull. Okay. And then sacrifice a goat for your sins. So, so the bull is uh, the biggest thing. It's an atonement for the priest and all of his household, the high priest. For the people, you just need a goat. 
<laughs> as a sacrifice for you, for all your sins for the whole year. You just need a goat. <laughs> and and then he said, and besides that, I want you to see how far from my heart your sin is. I want the high priest to pray all of your sins onto the onto another goat. And watch that goat go off, far off into the distance. That goat probably died, folks. Okay. It's the, it's the wilderness. But the <laughs> point was, the point was for the people to absolutely understand that the high priest was speaking for God and that their mm. sins were little big in the sight of God and they left as far as the east is from the west. And if we fast forward to Jesus and then Passover was in the festival was instituted to reenact this object lesson every year. Okay. That's what it was about. Fast forward to Jesus. God did not need Jesus to die to forgive our sins. Our sins were forgiven all along that was clear and jesus taught that god did not need blood spilled to appease him so a lot of where you're getting confused is because you, that keeps popping into your consciousness and you're trying to make it fit mm-hmm. because that's not what this says marlene um a couple of things we were talking about the, the goat that was you know, the scapegoat that was sent to the wilderness. You know, wilderness can be desert or wilderness can be just unpopulated scrubland in the Middle East. Correct. And my thought was, well, we know goats. A goat could survive for a long time on scrub, find a little water, find a little water. Yeah, and maybe somebody all else the other goats from the previous years are just in a little band, and he joins. Don't let him get your goat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but then the thought came up, and and Shirley looked this up um, in Psalm one hundred three, verse twelve, where it said, where God says, "As far as the east is from the west, that's how far your sins are." Yes. And that sort of evoked that image of watching that goat disappear in the distance with your sins. And then in Psalms saying, you know, God says, yeah, as far as you can see, as far from one horizon to the other, that's how far your sins are taken away. And that doesn't involve the shedding of blood. None of that. Yes. Yes. And we're going to, that's exactly right. And we, and I tried to highlight as we have gone through all these series of classes, how much, how often sins were forgiven without any bloodshed all through the New Testament, even if you just stick to the New Testament, okay? That it just happened all the time. God forgives us. Joe. So I, I just wanted to share, and I hope Donna doesn't mind in, in our group, she sent a chat and I do hate this feature of Zoom because when we go to breakout, you can't see that chat you can't anymore. See it. Yeah. But she said, and it was very similar to what you just said, the object lesson, that this is what they knew. So God said, okay, run with that. And she said, remember in Norse, you know, religion and paganism. Um, and she specifically used the word scapegoat too. Yeah. So where we get this word. Yeah. But doesn't that make Jesus our scapegoat? <laughs> That's why I wanted you to look at what that meant, because John was the one, that one guy is the one who calls him Lamb of God. He calls him that in Revelation. Mm -hmm. He calls him that in in his Mm -hmm. gospel. And I think he made that connection with this whole don't break his bones thing that happened at the cross because John was at the foot of the cross when that happened. Mm -hmm. And so John made this connection to, oh, my. Jesus is the lamb, Passover lamb. It's Passover. Right. Okay. Well, and so something else that the more we go in this Bible study, it just kind of reminds me of my experience as a reading teacher and that you, we can hit one word and misunderstand it and it flips the script. 
And then sometimes we get bogged down on the wrong clue and we miss the forest. Exactly. Yes. And that's, I think we've just took, taken this whole Lamb of God connection that John made in his mind. And it's taken in us in a completely different direction than Jesus took us. Yeah. Maybe we should call well, Jesus the goat of God. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Should be. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. If 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 John was trying to say that that Jesus was the scapegoat, there wouldn't have been any connection to not breaking bones, and there wouldn't have been any connection mm. to a mm. lamb. Exactly. They yeah. were completely different passages completely different festivals that's what i want you to see thank you marlene and and surely mention the fact that if we think of jesus as representing the the basically the end of the need to celebrate passover the new reminder that jesus his disciples was the wine and bread yes so and that we makes still sense are celebrating God's goodness to us, yes, but without the meat, without mm-hmm. the shedding of any blood. That's right. Well, I, we have a lamb every Easter at our house. That's good, <laughs> surely. Question: Where does the verse um, "without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin" come in? Yeah, that's later. <laughs> We're gonna I get think that's all again. Okay, we're gonna get to all of this stuff. And just as we looked at context and at the writers, and you know, as we've gone through, you know, you you've been in this from the beginning of like you've been in all the class series. Um, and and so we're not gonna we're we're just gonna take it as it comes. And we're about to fit next week. We will finish the gospels. And I'm going to want us to lash ourselves to the mast of Jesus at that point. (laughs) Because the gospels were so consistent about who Jesus was and how gentle he was and what the good news meant to him and what he came to do and how he came to draw us to God, how he pointed to God and never to himself. And um, I want us to remember that, even though those gospels, you know, those gospels, I'm going to tell you in a few weeks, those gospels were, were written by, they were oral traditions for a generation at least before they ever got compiled and written down most of them were anonymous we don't even actually know who wrote in pardon they were anonymous we don't know who wrote them we just named them this okay so so it was tradition that said they were written by matthew mark luke john you know luke 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 kind of raised his hand but um uh, and john gave us some hints within the within the text But we need to have a solid ground. That's the whole point of doing a gentle ramble through the Bible, of doing it carefully, is that we have a really good understanding of who God is because God doesn't change. His mercy Mm -hmm. endures forever. And a really good understanding of who Jesus was and what he said and how he taught before we get to all the rest of how everybody else who came after interpreted him. Now, Luke, Luke is counted as part of the Gospels, right? Correct. Okay, even though he wasn't one of the people that knew Jesus. Correct. Okay, I thought that was Luke. Yes, it was Luke, and he just was a little more honest about the fact that he had just gathered all these stories together and written them down. Thank you very much. (laughs) He never put himself out as being a disciple. Yeah, and then he wrote Acts, which is is what comes after the Gospels. It's kind of the the rest of the story. I heard somewhere one time that there's speculation that Luke may have been a young boy. 
uh, during Jesus' ministry. Is that not possible? I, I don't know. Mark is usually the one who is who is associated with being a young boy. Um, Luke, possibly. Um, Luke, we don't know who Luke was. They, mm. there, there is a Luke mentioned later in the New Testament by Paul and is referred to as our beloved physician, but we don't know if it's the same Luke. So we don't really know anything about these guys. So we're going to, what we're going to do is count that as a layer of stuff. That's not probably as important. You know, we know that we know what language they spoke. We know their context. We know where they lived kind of thing. Uh, So we're going to approach them as, as individuals from that historical context and, and let that tell us, how that informed what they wrote. Hmm. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Uh, You have come up, I think, with a great title for a a Christian song. Lash yourself to the mast of Jesus. Yeah, right. (laughs) Whoever's a musician in our group needs to try this song. Let's start writing lyrics. There you go. Well, I would I love for you guys to write a verse for that song and us all to share it someday. That would be wonderful. Oh my that, that would be so much better than so many modern worship songs that are all about how I am such a worm and I am so terrible and how can God possibly look on me except the blood of Jesus? Yes. <laughs> and what, what does that say about God? Right, right. Anyway, I I hope y'all remember that this is my approach. I'm showing you why I think the things I do. I can guarantee you there are a ton of Christians out there who absolutely agree with me. And there are a ton of them who would burn me at the stake. So, um, it's scapegoat right yeah so this, is, this is in your hands and in your heart mm-hmm. and when i say I lash mean, yourself to the mast of jesus i that's what i mean is i want you to go to the whole core of the holy spirit in your heart and see what resonates i can tell you one thing gail you make more sense than anything else i was taught <laughs> <laughs> that's good right Shirley, what were you thinking? into today, for weeks I've been dreading today. Really? I knew that you were going to say things that went against everything I was my entire life. And it's true. Because I knew for a fact that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I'm where Renee was last week. Mm-hmm. And I had made up my mind coming into this class that you were not going to change my life. <laughs> I knew I was right. That was the foundation my life was built on. And it was wrong. I was taught that he died for our sins too, but I not as personally as Renee was. How would you re-articulate that, Shirley? Don't know. I'll have to think about that. That's the thing to think about. Is if that Jesus did come to earth for us to get us out of our sin, to make us whole, right? Yeah. But not in the way I was taught. Exactly. Right. The blood has been the foundation, and I, I, you know, I'm having trouble with all of it too. You get it, and then all of a sudden, it all comes flooding back in. That's because right. the blood was it. That's what our religion was founded on. He died on the cross for your sins. 
And that's what you remembered when things were bad. That's right. And it's been indoctrinated into me. And I've indoctrinated it into others. And it's not so much the fact that I believe the wrong things so, for so many years. It's the fact that I, I shoved that into others' brains. I can't even talk. That I indoctrinated children. Mm-hmm. Same. Me too. Indoctrinated too. It doesn't ruin us. It's not going to hurt us. You know, they, they will, God, the Holy Spirit is more powerful than we are as parents mm-hmm. or as teachers. Okay. And, and I hope. Shirley, one thing I learned last week is tomorrow you're going to feel so much better mm-hmm. and so much freer and you're going to have joy. I tell you, after Thursday, and I cried all day <laughs> last week and that Friday, when I got up, it was like a new world was open to me. Praise God. And you look for that new world, surely you'll find it. Mm-hmm. Praise God. That, that Beautiful. Beautiful. I, I, I want you all to hear me when, when I say that it is it, that Jesus did come because of our sins. But he didn't come to die because of them. He came to live. He came to show us that we don't have to love the darkness. We don't have to live in the sin. God loves us and is right here with us and forgives us and is delighted with us. And and the politics killed Jesus. Not God. That's well said. Yeah. I just, it just blows my heart up to hear you you guys say what you say that you know to I know that feeling Renee when you wake up in the morning and and the whole world has shifted that's phenomenal that's wonderful and it's so life-giving when that happens and you'll find it Shirley I, I have faith that you'll find it because girl We've been in the same shoes for a long time. And it's so much easier to focus on this mission that Christ came to die for our sins than to listen to the words he taught us all the time he was living. That's more the message here is what were his words? What was it that he came to teach us? It wasn't just I'm going to die. We all die. Yes, okay, he did it a little bit more magnificently than we are going to do it. However, it was the message he gave all his life that we're to take care of ourselves and to take care of others. We took a small thing, flipped the script, and forgot the forest. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think, yes. and I think, um, you know, surely something that jumped out to me when you said our whole religion was founded on the blood of Jesus, <clears throat> I think that is true in terms of modern teaching. Mod, you know, somewhere along the way, the message got garbled because when you really look at what our religion was founded on, what did the disciples preach? after Jesus returned to heaven, it was Christ resurrected. The man that you killed or the man that was killed came back to life. And we are here to tell you the good news of Jesus resurrected. Yes. And to walk in the way. And there, there's no record that I can recall offhand that until you got to Paul, um, that there was any talk about the need for the spilling of blood right, um, in the teaching of the early church. Right. So our modern religion now is based on Paul yes. and not Jesus in the Gospels. Yes. Is what you're saying. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
It's doctrinally. I believe that Christianity is based on Jesus. I do believe that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the Holy Spirit operates in Christianity. Jesus is there. Mm -hmm. But yes, when we get to the, to, to Acts and start to see how the different, you know, thing, the world, Jesus was resurrected and then he ascended into heaven and then everybody was left saying, now what? And lots of people had answers. But I also think the same answer. Right. And I I also think that by, by saying that Christ died for our sins is a wonderful way to judge and condemn and hold power over those that you want to. I was going to say, I was going to say, follow the money. Sadly. Yeah. So I think a better thing to do would be to say, Jesus laid down his divinity and came for our sins. You know, that reminds me. Love of darkness. I wouldn't even say sins because of our love of darkness. That That reminds me, Gail, of something that um, um, Madeline Langle wrote. Um, I've got this collection of poems and thoughts of hers that she wrote for Advent. And there's this one poem in there that really struck me where she said, the great sacrifice of Jesus was not dying on the cross. The great sacrifice of Jesus was laying down his divinity and coming to earth to live as a human being. Yes. And he saw it through even unto die. He eked every last second out. Even on last week, remember, he was on his way to the cross. Somebody else is carrying his cross for him because he's so weak. And the women are crying and weeping and mourning. And he says, you're worried about the wrong thing. This is not the important part. Mm-hmm. He said that to them. He said, you need to worry about what's about to happen to Jerusalem and what you're going to do when that happens. Could you say that again for me, Marlene? I'm writing notes. Oh, Jesus laid down yeah, and said, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, look up the poem. I'll look up the poem and I'll put it on the Facebook page. But basically All what right. Madeline Lingle was saying was that the great sacrifice that Jesus made was not in dying on the cross. Okay. It was in becoming human, laying down his divinity and becoming human. Okay, thank you. That was an ultimate expression of love for humanity and that Jesus made that sacrifice. Yes, making himself vulnerable even to the point of allowing himself to be crucified. That that makes me fall on my face. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's big love. All right. Another big day at the Bible class. We will. Uh, <laughs> um, I love all of you and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.